This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions, and where we try to have compassionate conversations about challenging subjects. And my name is Stephen Bradford Long. Well, before we get started, as always, we have just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, this show is made possible by my paid subscribers at sacredtension.substack.com. All of my work, all of my public content creation is on that sacredtension.substack.com page. It is all consolidated there. And if you subscribe, if you become a paying subscriber, then you will get extra content every single week, including my curiosities post, where I curate a list of interesting things that I have found from around the internet that week, and my House of Heretics podcast, which is my weekly conversation with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson, and we talk about religion, philosophy, theology, culture, politics from our overlapping but slightly divergent perspectives. It is also a live show that patrons have access to, so if you want to listen in, we normally do it every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, if you don't become a paying subscriber, I will be forced to hard labor on Elizabeth's farm to make ends meet. And I do not want to do that. I will have to develop calluses on my baby soft, delicate podcaster hands. And this will be a terrible fate. So to avoid that fate, do please become a paying subscriber. Now, if you are not able to, I completely understand. Sometimes that isn't in the cards. So the very best way to support this show is just to subscribe, and you don't need to become a paying subscriber. It literally takes two seconds. Using the link in the show notes, go to sacredtension.substack.com, hit subscribe, enter your email address, and then I will show up in your inbox every single week like a slasher, like like a serial killer in a slasher movie. I will just keep coming back. And also be sure to share it with your friends. Use the share button on the post. Share it with your friends. Spread the gospel. Spread the mind virus of sacred tension. Those are the best ways to support my work. All right. With all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome my sister Elizabeth Schultz back to the show. Hello. Hello. It's so good to be back. And yes, I do have calluses. You do have calluses. You're uh... a... <laughs> You're so much more butch than I am. You're you're like the the masculine one in this relationship. You're, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. You, you can still throw me over you your are, shoulder and run off with me. You yes, but you wrestle hogs. Okay, we can get to that story in a moment. But first, uh, some introductions. Elizabeth Schultz, you are my sister. You are my older sister. You are a conservative Christian. We have been having an ongoing dialogue on this show. It's a series called Sibling Rivalry. This is the third installment in that series. Uh, For people who are interested, do please go and listen to the previous episodes. Uh, They are back in the archive. And I will also post links to them in the show notes for this episode. So, We've been having conversations about things like what is God, what is freedom, what is uh, man, what is 
um, what the the big questions, the big things, and uh, kind of exploring similarities and differences, of which there are many. So, but first, so you texted me this like this horrifying story. Uh, but speaking of <laughs> speaking of hard labor on your farm, you had to wrestle a hog. Yes, yes. So, so first off, don't ever make the faulty assumption that farmers are are dumb and uh, bored. <laughs> the 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 least boring life I can think of is actually one of being a farmer because you never know what sort of exciting thing every day will bring. Uh, like today, I had a, I had an adventure before eight eight a.m. So you know, it's, what was, it's, what was so your if you're adventure? bored with city life, well, uh, I had to crawl into the chicken tractor and uh, rescue some sick chicks and put them in the chick hospital. And then soon after that, we had to load a dead piglet into the back of the, the truck and take it out to the back 80 to feed the local fauna, uh, predatory fauna, uh, our coyote pack back there. So all of that before 8 a.m., right? And then, wow. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so uh, what was it, about two weeks ago? Uh, there, there are some days in homesteading, farming uh, that are harder than others. And um, so... I think it was two two Mondays ago. My husband and I went to go pick up a hog. Now we've raised we've raised pigs before. We've we've loaded them up in the back of the truck before. Nothing new. But this hog was a special hog because one of our friends, who is a gourmet chef, he's amazing. I love eating his food. He wanted to do a a actual like genuine hog Hawaiian hog roast where you literally take a backhoe and you dig this huge hole and you fill it with sand and then you get get the the, the fire going and then you put the whole hog in there and so he requested a 200 pound hog and we, th- we thought we thought to ourselves well yeah we can we can we can go get this hog and we can hang on to him until it's time for this hawaiian hog roast so we go to the pig farmer right the same place where we've picked up our piglets before and uh we take our big rumbly truck we've got this big um dually truck it's diesel right really loud really rumbly it roars uh, i love it <laughs> Uh, and we took the big cage that we normally transport hogs in, not the cattle carrier, right? And so we get to the hog farmer and he points out the hog. And I'm like, oh, that's big. That's a big guy. He's like, yep, that's 200 pounds. He looks at our cage. He's like, yep, he'll fit it. He'll fit in it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, all right, he'll fit. So we, we load this 200 pound hog in the back of the truck and we start driving out, right? And a quarter mile, okay, so context, we're in the middle of rural Oklahoma. So we're just in the middle of nowhere, right? And a quarter mile down the road, I happen to look back and that pig has like busted out of the back of the cage, right? I mean, completely broke, broke through the door. And I turn back to tell Adam, my husband, the hog's getting out of the cage. And I turned back around just in time to see the hind quarters of the pig flying over the back of the pickup truck. So, so Adam like slams on the brake, come to the screeching halt. He like bolts out of the car. Good thing he's, uh, he's in shape. He's in the army. So he does a lot of PT. So he starts sprinting after the hog, which who's like hightailing it back to the hog farm, right? As fast as his little piggy legs can take him. And, uh, and Adam like, like heads him off. And, uh, I finally catch up. And, and we have to maneuver this hog back to the truck, back into the cage, right? And uh, so the, the way you do that, you know, just in case you need to know this little tidbit of information, here's important, important facts about how to wrangle hogs, okay? You ready for this? You never know. You never know when you might need this. You grab one ear really hard, okay? And you grab the tail, 
And then the other person grabs the other ear and starts whacking the pig in the butt. Okay, and then you just kind of hope that this 200 pounds of flesh will go in the right direction. This is my this is my kink. I love it when someone grabs me by the ear and by the tail and starts slapping me. That's that's (laughs) my that's my kink. No, I'm kidding. Go on. Anyway, long long story short, that that hog ended up jumping out of the back of the truck twice. Uh, And and you know what the funny thing is, we'd be standing by the side of the road wrangling this hog and people would literally drive by and wave and smile at us. And I'm like, is this a normal thing to see on a rural Oklahoma road is like a people, a person by the side of the road with this 200 pound hog. And just to give you perspective, a 200 pound hog is about three or four feet long and just as solid as can be. Right. Um, Yeah, no, they're they're big. They're 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 not they're not to be fucked with. They're no, you don't don't mess with them. Oh, my goodness. We finally get this thing home and, you know, we open up the cage and I was joking with Adam like, well, he knows how to get out of the cage and how to get out of the truck. So this should be easy breezy. Do you know what that guy did? He just sat right down in the back of the truck and refused to move. And I assume "Ah." screaming like pigs scream. (laughs) Their shrieks are. Oh, yeah. Are intense. They do, yeah, and it's it's the ugh, it's a horrible sound. Uh, anyway, we we had a we <laughs> after much poking and prodding, we ended up just shoving the entire cage off the back of the pickup truck into the hog pen. He finally got out, but but here here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. After all of that effort, okay, and and by the way, we were covered in hog poo and mud. I mean, just disgusting, right? <laughs> well, the next day I get back from being in, from teaching all day and. You know what? That pig has died. He just up and died. The nerve of him. You know, all this effort. That's that's what I would do if I worked on your farm, too. I would just be like, (laughs) screw this. I would just die. I would just lie down and die. (laughs) Well, I was so frustrated because I'm like, we spent all this effort. (laughs) Well, then then it rained. And so then we ended up in the mud, in the rain, hauling this. You know, we had to pick up this huge hog. We went over to our friend's house had a backhoe, loaded him into the... Anyway, it it was just one of those uh, exercises in frustration. And Um, and to be clear, just so people know, you are not a farming amateur. You've been... You've been doing this for years and years and years. So this isn't you being, you know, incompetent. This is just farm life. This is just this is just farm life. This is just farm you know, life. You, you you can do everything right and then things all go wrong. So and and you know actually that's that's one of the the um, rare blessings of farming is that it teaches you great humility. It teaches you diligence. It teaches you some some measure of just sheer stubbornness because you just got to kind of push through things. But it, I, I would say that that farming is one of the best teachers of just practical life, life common sense, and and that sometimes things just don't work out the way you want it to. And so it it really teaches you how to have a good attitude in the midst of great trial. Uh, and so I'm I'm thankful that my kids have the opportunity to experience this, to see this. They they've seen animals die and they've seen animals born. And so they, this whole cycle of life, there there is a rootedness that takes place in farming that I have not found anywhere else in in, in any part of society. Uh, and it creates maturity and a and a personal responsibility. Um, yeah. So that that's why we do it. That's why we homestead. That's why we have animals. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that's true of all the farming communities that I've interacted with here in Appalachia, where a lot of my friends and coworkers they they live either in communes or they or in farming communities, and that is definitely what I've observed in those communities. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we have inflamed every vegan and vegetarian in my audience. Um, I apologize. It's okay. No, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. And, uh, 
nope, but this is this just the way farm life is. Um, yeah. Thank well, you for sharing to, that story. Yes, go on, go on. You're welcome. Well, just yeah, just to add some. That's actually why we raise our own food, uh, in in our own meat. It's because I I have been so horrified at how animals are treated and taken care of in the industrial farming model. Yeah. I, I think it's awful. And so that was actually what 15, 20 years ago. It would be more like 15, 18 years ago. That's actually what sparked my desire to raise our own animals so that I know I know how that animal's been taken care of. I know what he's eaten. And, and so it's like, I want my animals to be as happy and fulfilled creatures their entire lives uh, until they go into the freezer. <laughs> and and often we do that ourselves too. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I see it as the a high level of, of responsibility and care for for the natural world. I think that future humans will look back on this era of animal factory farming and just see it as one of the great immoralities of our age. Like I think it will be one of the great atrocities of our age, how we treat animals. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I and and also the it also is, is very devastating to the humans uh, around these factory farms and the environment. And yeah, it's it's it it's um well I could go more onto this, but <laughs> this is an area of, that I'm really passionate about is sustainable agriculture, uh, and so um, that's great. No, that I, would be I something sh- worth talking about. Definitely, I mean, I think that's one of those things that we have a lot of overlap with is yeah. concern for the natural world and our connection to it, and and the well being of other conscious creatures like farm animals and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. all right, uh, well, I am. Once again, just going to let you kind of take the reins here in terms of where we want to go. You have some topics to discuss. Last time we talked about what is God. The time before that, I um, grilled you on some basic worldview questions. So what do you have for us today? Well, I, I thought we could... Um continue this worldview conversation uh, with with something a little bit more specific. Um, but the second worldview question is the, the question of who is man and, and the nature of man. And that's that's a huge, huge, con, you know, big uh, topic. And so I, I thought we could narrow it a little bit. So I've, I've been really wrestling with and struggling with this question about um, human nature and freedom. And, and the question of does human nature allow for an, an individual and in extension as society to be truly free. You know, we're, we're looking around, there's a lot going on in our culture. There's a lot of talk about, about freedom from this, freedom from that. I wanna be able to be free to do this. Uh, and, and then it, and it just kind of makes me pause and say, okay, well, first off, what's freedom? And are humans designed for freedom? Can we do it? And what does that look like? And so, I guess we can we can talk about this this topic this worldview topic of who is man in the context of what is freedom yeah and can man mankind capital m man um live in it yeah what do you think about that is that is that, that a sounds, good question that sounds great that sounds perfect so obviously we need to define our terms here because yep. freedom is so broad so yes it is when the moment that I hear the word freedom, I think of free will, and that may or may not be what you mean when you think of freedom. So I don't, and maybe we can get to this later, I am not sure that free will, libertarian free will, uh, exists. I don't know if free will is, I think it's an illusion that we have. Okay. Um, 
but that might not be what you mean by freedom. So what do you mean? I, I think it's, I, yeah, I, I think it's a small part of freedom. And so, so when I, let's, let's discuss this. So, uh, and my, my big answer to this question of does human nature allow for an individual to be truly free is no, but we can strive for it. So there, there's my answer. There's yeah. my hypothesis. No, Just I would, I would put, agree putting with it that. Out there. I would yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that that kind of breaks the law of non-contradiction in formal logic. You can't have a statement that's both yes and no. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of what I'm saying. Um, but I, I would I would say that that we are not as as we are designed. I'm sorry. No, let me let me back up. We are designed for freedom, but we're not capable of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. As no, we I, are. I'm, I'm totally tracking with that. It, it, yeah. I'm sure where we might have some divergences is what that means and what that looks like. But yes. in principle, I think that there is such a thing as human nature mm-hmm. and we are not blank slates. And OK, so so you would you would not agree with Rousseau, who said that human beings like that whole idea of the tabula rosa, that correct. blank slate that we are, were born as a blank slate. Correct. No, I I think that there is a long history of a denial of human nature for good reason. And that reason is that innateness, arguments from innateness have so often been arguments for oppression, for the subjugation of women, for the subjugation of minority groups. Now, but what this has done is it has instilled in us, and by us, I mean fellow progressives like myself, it has instilled in us a deep suspicion of any kind of innateness or limitedness. The fact that we are confined by our bodies, by our biology, and by our evolution, and what, I would, what I would say is our evolution. Um, one of my favorite books by Steven Pinker is called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. And I recommend everyone read it. I think it's his best book. It, it came out, you know, like two or three decades ago, and it's a bit dated. But his basic argument is that there there is this deep allergic reaction that a lot of people on the left have towards innateness. So we do have limits and we do have a human nature. Now, what that is, that is the source of endless debate and speculation and figuring out what that is. But I do think that it is there. Yes, go on. You Can 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 you define innateness? So, innateness So, innateness might be the wrong word because we because the moment I think about the word innateness, it's more complex than merely innate it it is there is this dance between environment and worldview but we're also physical creatures that evolved in certain conditions and that includes our minds and so i think that utopian ideologies often run up against human nature basically what i mean by by innateness is human nature our evolved nature and that's very malleable and that's very fluid but it does have limits and okay. and it and that also is not to say that it is destiny right so innateness can be i am i am genetically predisposed to depression that is a genetic fact about me 
I that is part of my nature. That does not mean that I am destined to live a depressed life my entire life. It, it means mm-hmm. that I have to be conscious about it. It means I have to exercise. It means I have to get yep. I yep. have to be more vigilant about it than other people. But the vast majority of my propensity towards depression is determined by genetics, I believe. And so it it, it changes how we interact with the world. And there are limits to what we are capable of. So are, are you familiar with the field of epigenetics? Of course. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating about how, you know, our, our environment impacts our and, and our thoughts and our emotions impact our genetic expression. So that's yeah. So so what I'm hearing from you is that you will not follow Rousseau's main idea that we are born tabula rosa. In other words, we're, we're born as completely, completely blank slates. Uh, yes, with the, with the caveat that I have never read Rousseau. So I am, I'm trusting okay. your okay. analysis that that is a, a yeah. clear reflection oh, he's, of what he's you He's hard wrote. to read. <laughs> uh, so R- Rousseau is considered the father of progressivism in many ways. Uh, one of the... One of the it, further back fathers of progressivism and socialism and, and those that stream of philosophy. Uh, and so what you're telling me, anyway, well, let's continue. Let's continue. We'll this, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. So, so freedom, freedom is a, a really complex idea. Okay. And, and what gets me is that Americans, we use this word freedom all the time, like freedom for this, freedom for that. And then we say, oh, our, our soldiers have gone to fight for our freedoms. That really actually irritates my husband who is in the military. He's like, I don't fight for your freedoms. You need to fight for your own freedom, right? Um, so what is freedom? And I, I think at, at the crux, at the root of our culture wars today, between left and right, between progressives and conservatives, is a misunderstanding or a partial understanding or a complete lack of understanding of what this word freedom means. Okay, and and perhaps if we start really digging down into it, we can come to more points of agreement than disagreement on the two sides. So so generally, the I guess a basic lexical definition of freedom is being free from constraint mm-hmm. or co- coercion. Mm-hmm. Right. Would you say that that's kind of like your, your general definition? Yeah. Freedom I mean, from constraint. I mean, I think co- I, coercion. I think I have a very basic definition of freedom from undue imposition onto your life so the, yeah, yeah I, I think i have a very basic definition of freedom and what constitutes a violation of freedom i think in terms of basic civil rights like mm-hmm. a violation of you know my ability to be employed because i'm gay that would be a violation um basic imposition on my free speech from the government, yeah. basic imposition on my ability to own property, you know, stuff like that, that um, not all of those are in exactly the same category, but they all rhyme with each other. Uh, so yeah. basic. And, and then and then, of course, wedded to that, but not quite the same is the freedom to. But it is ultimately mm-hmm. a different category. So there's freedom from and freedom to freedom to do something versus freedom mm-hmm. from an imposition. And, and I guess how one intuitively situates their definition of freedom will kind of determine how they live it out in practice. Yeah. So you that you you're right on. So you you just brought out two huge categories of the understanding of freedom. One is freedom from, which is called negative freedom and the Hebrew uh, Old Testament actually has a word for that. It's called a uh, hafesh, okay? And then there's freedom for 
which is this, this, it's called positive freedom. And the Hebrew word associated with that is herut. And so, but in English, we only translate one word and that's freedom. But it takes both of these freedoms together and understanding and working out of both these freedoms together to have true freedom, which is what I've called or started to call um, ordered liberty. Okay. okay. And um, so th this is fascinating because we, we need both, but our culture is fixated on the negative freedom, the, the freedom from. Uh, but that creates a huge imbalance. And I, and I actually am, we're seeing this imbalance working out in our culture now because what what that is, it's basically going back to that Rousseauian idea of, actually, he has this great quote. Oh, let me find it. He, he basically says that we are born free, but everywhere humans go, they're enslaved. Uh, they are in chains. And so this idea of freedom from is to, the, the logical conclusion is, well, if we just get rid of the chains, then we'll be free. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, to, to a degree, that's that's true. If we just get rid of the chains, we'll be free. But that that's really unbalanced if you leave out the, the, the positive freedom, because what happens is that that sort of freedom leads itself, its, its own self leads to license. OK. And when you have license, too much license, it leads to anarchy. And history teaches us that when societies shift into anarchy, tyranny soon follows because you need a strong power to come and reestablish order. So that type of freedom unbalanced is very, very dangerous. And that is why I'm really concerned about our current culture right now with what's going on, because that's that's the only kind of freedom that's being promoted and pushed and um, and glorified. Yeah, we're not talking about positive freedom. If at I all. and, you know, if I may strike a slightly dissonant note, I think that we kind of maybe broadly share similar concerns you know i'm i'm worried about the mental health of a lot of my peers i'm worried mm -hmm. about the the decline of meaning making institutions i'm i and and meaning making structures i'm i'm worried about all of that stuff um would you call it an existential threat yeah okay i think that might be where <laughs> we differ i don't know yet if if it is an existential threat or if it's something to manage. So I don't know. I'm I'm willing to say that it might be an existential threat because when I when I hear existential threat I think the annihilation of the human race. Um I don't know okay, if this well, I, is I'm I'm thinking an annihilation of um our culture, our uh, of the United okay, States of so, America as we know it. So a, so a cultural annihilation. Cultural, yeah. Okay. Yeah. OK, that's cl that's clarifying. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I probably share a lot of those concerns, but in in different ways. You know, I mm -hmm. I and, and it also just brings home, you know, there's this quote by G.K. Chesterton where he says the world is not full of Christian vices. The world is full of Christian virtues that have been separated out from each other and gone mad. And mm -hmm. the basic idea yeah. and, I, and I use this quote to apply to the uh, seven tenets of the satanic temple all the time where oh chesterson is rolling in his grave uh, yes i know <laughs> um he really is but the basic you know we have these individual these seven tenets things like one should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures with within reason and then the freedoms of others should be protected including the freedom to offend and then one's body is inviolable subject to one's own will alone and the and people tend to read these as discrete items without realizing that they are 
that they are constraints upon each other. So any single principle, when it's on its own, becomes pathological. Mm-hmm. And it always yeah. needs outside principles to constrain it. Otherwise, one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. If it is not constrained by one should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason, or the freedoms of others should be respected, or one should live in, uh, one should never distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. If it isn't constrained by those, including all the others, then then what we have is a pathological principle. So it sounds like what you're getting at is mm-hmm. with, exactly yeah. without without other principles constraining the freedom from heuristic, then it becomes pathological. Is that right? Correct. That okay. is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting that, that you're using the word to constrain because that is the very opposite of what we think of in, in, in modern, you know, American dialogue when we're talking about freedom, meaning freedom or the, the negative freedom, freedom from that's the opposite of freedom from because yeah. freedom from is lack of constraint. Yeah. Right. And so, so what's that other half of freedom that we need? And, and what's interesting to note is historically, the French Revolution, that was their main focus, was this, this focus on negative freedom, this freedom from, freedom from restraint, freedom from tyrants, freedom from this, freedom from that. That, that laid kind of the, the intellectual bedrock for the, for the French Revolution uh, in, in 1789, right? And it, and it led to a bloodbath and it led to an even worse tyranny stepping in in Napoleon, right? So historically, we can see, not just in the case of the French Revolution, but other, other revolutions, what happens when the sole focus is only on negative freedom. It's bad, okay? And it doesn't actually, it, it undermines freedom, right? So that's why we need to focus on positive freedom, right? And have that balance. And that's actually what lit that, which was the intellectual uh, bedrock of the American Revolution was this focus on positive freedom, right? Mm. Uh, and so when we're talking about can can humans live in freedom, we really need to focus on positive freedom. Uh, so so should we talk about positive freedom? Because you touched on it when you mentioned your concern for those who are in depression, anxiety, you know, the, the mental health crisis. Because I think what we're seeing in the mental health crisis is the manifestation of the lack of positive freedom. So so would, so the lack of positive freedom, I, maybe the way I'm interpreting this is, and this is very much how I have to live my life, is to, I have to accept the constraints on my life. Mm-hmm. And when I accept the limitations, then I am free. I really like what Madeline Longle says, where she says freedom is like a sonnet where you, or I forget, I forget the exact, I am sure I have the book somewhere right here on my shelf. This isn't a wrinkle in time. Um, yes. Where, yeah. you know, free, it's, it's like a sonnet where you, you have the harsh constraints of the sonnet 14 lines iambic pentameter always so on and so you know the the hard constraints but within that you have absolute freedom to write whatever you want to write about Mm -hmm. and And it creates great beauty and it creates great beauty. the confines create beauty yeah that's very much kind of the metaphor that i have to live by because i am you know, just one example, because I'm so prone to depression, I have to guard my sleep really carefully. I have to have nine hours of sleep every night. I have to keep a sleep schedule. That is something that is 
very annoying to a lot of people around me. Like, oh, why can't you just stay up and frolic? Is there that's such a trivial example, but it's an example of acknowledging a constraint and then having to live mm-hmm. by it and then that kind of creating a bit of uh, the the peace that results yes. is that yes. yeah. kind of what you are getting at or you're, you're, or yes. is it yeah. or is it the freedom to practice positive values that bring structure to our life okay yes and okay <laughs> both and okay <laughs> but I, I why don't i define positive freedom okay uh, and I, I'm going to I love this quote from de Tocqueville, who's the author of uh, Democracy in America. He says, nothing is more wonderful than that, than the art of being free. He calls it an art, not a science. But nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. OK, so freedom is a great paradox. And you kind of touched on that paradox when you're talking about the sonnet, uh, that, that wonderful quote from A, a Wrinkle in Time. It, it is it is a paradox because in order to be free, you have to be constrained. OK, so defining positive freedom it's a it's a freedom for excellence it's a freedom uh it's the ability to accomplish your telos and i'll I'll define that in a little bit your telos and and to be virtuous that is positive freedom so let, let me back up and define some of those words within that definition so telos is the greek notion of of purpose that every single individual is designed for a specific purpose. It's very closely related to the, the Christian understanding of providence and, and, and the amago dei. This idea that human beings, the individual human being, not just human beings as a, as a, um, as a group, but individuals are created, designed for a very specific purpose in their lives. And it's not something that they choose for themselves. It's not something that they make up. It's something that is given to them. That's the idea of telos. And then the, the, the Greek idea of virtue, something is virtuous when it accomplishes its designed purpose. Okay. That's the definition according to the Greeks. Okay. And so my meat bird chickens uh, that are designed to be raised and then at nine weeks processed for meat, they are virtuous because they are accomplishing that for which they were made. Okay. So going back so to that we're, definition. We're all meat bird chickens. <laughs> we're, we're all cosmic meat bird chickens. We're all, well, I hope we're not because they stink and they're stupid. <laughs> I would. I, mean, they I are think the dumbest that animals is, I've ever encountered. I think that is an excellent description of us, honestly. <laughs> well, I think I'd rather, uh, quite honestly, uh, just be a pig. <laughs> okay, fair. Because <laughs> because they are in hog heaven most of the time. Um, <laughs> fair. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's see. Where, oh my goodness, where were we? We were talking about positive freedom. Okay, right? so so telos um, purpose virtue is fulfilling one's uh, telos. Tell us. Yes. Tell us. Yes. And because because it goes back to this idea that liberty is okay. So liberty is another word that we enter that that we use in English to describe freedom. Um, Liberty is more than liberation. You can set people free politically and yet they can still be slaves. They can still be bound by addictions, by emotions. You know, this is this is interesting. And, you know, I I again to strike a dissonant note here. I appreciate this explanation a lot. And I think, I hope what this demonstrates is a conservative philosophy that goes beyond the cult of Trumpism and reactionaryism. Uh, and what I hope people see is that as much as they might disagree with conservatism, they're, they're 
are forms of philosophy here that are worth engaging with. So, and, and honestly, that is one of the main reasons why I've been having you come onto my show, because I think most, I think a lot of my fellow progressives genuinely do not know that thoughtful conservatives exist. I genuinely think that a lot of my fellow progressives, and vice versa, a lot of conservatives genuinely do not think that that thoughtful, restrained, philosophically-minded people on the other side, quote-unquote, other side of the aisle, whatever the hell that means, actually exist. So, I, you know, to strike a dissonant note, I, I would hesitate to describe this in terms of God and, and creation and purpose and, and that kind of stuff. I will say that, and I've been talking about this quite a bit on my Patreon show recently, or on my, my paid subscriber show, I worry that the secular rejection of religion, which I see as generally positive, is also removing some very important meaning-making institutions. And mm-hmm. I think that... I, I would agree. And I think that is worth worrying about. And yes. I th- and, um, and I think that there is real loneliness that can result from that and loneliness is poison loneliness is is a corrosive acid um yeah and and it's worth worrying about for a much larger reason um in that what i see going on right now is the undermining of the very the 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 very things that are required for a society to not only live in liberty but to enjoy the fruits of liberty which are true justice true equality true civility right those very those bedrock foundational things are disappearing right now and unfortunately they are rooted in the religious and uh, not unfortunately but just truthfully they are rooted in the the religious tradition right this idea of love your neighbor serve one another you know that that's for centuries has been religious and and so by taking that away you are undermining a society's ability to live in peace yeah. and to live in liberty. I mean, I think uh, the, I love this. Yeah, go on, go on, go on. Oh, there's this great quote, quote by Rabbi Sachs who says that the human drama can be summed up as follows God is free, God creates order, God gives man freedom, and then man creates chaos. And that's what we're really good at. We're good at creating chaos. Okay. And um, go, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's really interesting for me thinking through this because I would not want to be who I am in any other age than today. And I, I genuinely believe that now is the best time to be alive and primarily because of the human rights movements that have swept the world and the expanding circle of, of empathy. And so I'm in the interesting position of being gay. And because of that, I would not want to live in a traditional society 100 years ago or even 50 years ago that that we have accounts of what it was like to be gay during those periods. And it was Mm -hmm. an unmitigated nightmare. And so I there's there's no going back for me to to rebuilding that world. I don't think that that would be good. But I, there is a baby in that bathwater, mm-hmm. and so it's being thrown out. Th- and so yeah. the so I don't want the dogma, and I don't want the the uh, 
repressive religious regimes that made life impossible for people like me. And and you know, to be clear, it, it that was a net loss for all of society that LGBT people could not live as productive members of society. That wasn't just a loss for the gay and trans people at that time, though they suffered the greatest loss. It's also a loss to the rest of culture because the, those outsiders relegated to the margins are forced to live outside of society in a way that is destructive. Not just to them, but also to the world. So I don't want to go back to that world. Um, but can, can I just say something about human rights? Yes. The seed of the very idea of human rights is a Judeo-Christian idea. Historically, that is where it comes from. And so, yeah, it wasn't practiced well. Yeah, there's been a lot of historical mistakes. But it is rooted in that Judeo-Christian ethic. And so to rid the world of the Judeo-Christian ethic will be to rid the world of the primary key principle of that, that's found in human rights and, and, and the whole idea of human dignity, right? Um, without it, where does human dignity come from, right? So, so historically, that's where it comes from. Um, in the West, in the West, for sure. And, in the West. And this is actually, yeah. this is an interesting, this is interesting because I would agree with that as a fact of history, maybe with mm-hmm. some quibbles, Maybe with some because religious history is never clean. You know, religious history is is never a. Well, there's there's wait wait let me let me clarify. There's a difference between religious history and truly the 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 history of the true church of those who really did follow the teachings of Christ. All right, and so you have the power and might structure of the church as opposed to those who are truly who humble and followed the actual teachings. Those are two very different histories that often collide violently. Okay, just to say. To say that we this is such a tangent and we don't really need to go down this road if if there's if we don't have enough time. I think it's totally not only right, but necessary to acknowledge where certain cultural innovations come from. And I think that there are innovations that came from Christian history that are good, that came from the church, that came from Christian theology. Absolutely. I mean, the we would not be living in the world that we're living in now if it weren't for Martin Luther, for good or for ill, uh, for both good and ill. We would not be living in the world that we're living in now if it weren't for the various uh, councils and if it weren't for St. Augustine and if it weren't for so on and so forth, right? And there are real innovations there that are both positive and negative. And I think that one could make a substantial argument that human rights and the seed of human rights is one of them because you know you you have like these countervailing streams within scripture itself where on the one hand paul appears to be saying weird things about women on the other hand he is saying things like there is neither jew nor gentile male nor female slave nor free which is an extraordinarily progressive idea and the seeds of that have flourished, right? None of that is proof of the doctrinal claims of Christianity. That is not an argument for the doctrinal claims of Christianity that God is a trinity, 
that Jesus was resurrected on the third day, that so on and so forth. So so there's we need to avoid some intellectual jujitsu here where there are there are, there, are, there are different categories of truth and well, wait 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 we don't can... you know i've trained in jujitsu come on did you really <laughs> yeah oh i didn't know that okay good good to know. i do martial arts no. okay brother I, dear i didn't know that um so <laughs> just just joking <laughs> to so democracy it, to say that the greeks innovated democracy is not to say that we need that we should accept greek paganism Right. Or go back to Greek city states, which were a huge failure, by the way. Greek Greek yes. democracy was a massive failure. Yes. And or, our um our founders said steer clear. My my area of interest, I believe that that Buddhism, that uh Mahamudra and Zogchen came across insights about the human mind that are true and revolutionary. That does not mean that I accept the constellation of metaphysical claims within Buddhism, which is why I don't call myself a Buddhist. So I think that it is it's possible for a society to properly contextualize where innovations in human history came from without having to reify metaphysical the metaphysical claims of christianity in the same and so we can or at the very least acknowledge that acknowledging the certain benefits of christian history or the certain benefits of buddhist teachings are not in themselves an argument for core metaphysical the, claims the the validity of the claims i i got Correct. you i'm i'm tracking i'm tracking yeah. that was a side yeah. note but it's it's something that <laughs> annoys me because there is a bit of a martin bailey that happens where very often an apologist it, it, youtube apologists i watch them for the hell of it for the fun of it but they often do this move where they will say christianity has innovated these ideas and that is therefore validation of the whole thing. The whole thing. That is not the case. So we just need to be careful of that. And then there's the the danger on the other end of the genetic fallacy that says, well, because these ideas uh, came from Christianity, we're going to reject the whole thing, right? Yes. Because we don't like Christianity or we don't like a certain thing. Absolutely. Uh, we, we don't like the source. We're, we're just going to reject it all, right? Which is what I see happening in the culture is a rejection of all of it. It's the literally throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, I agree with that. But let's let's redirect back to that original question. Now that we've defined freedom and kind of talked about it a little bit, um, that that question of does human nature allow for an individual to, to truly be free? And, and you kind of touched on this idea of free will. And I, I would like to hear more about that, because in my mind, without free will, you can't choose to be free. So therefore, what's the point? <laughs> so yeah. explain to me what what you mean by there is no free will. Sure. And this is so this is getting into deep and murky and challenging waters, but it actually relates directly to what I was saying earlier about acknowledging the constraints on my life mm -hmm. and how there is actual liberation. There is a sense of liberation and peace that comes from that. So when I say that I don't believe in free will, I mean that 
the human mind is not beyond causality. All the rest of the universe, we accept that the rest of the universe exists within causality. I cause and effect universe. Cause yes. and effect. So I have this I have this water bottle, I drop it, it falls, right? Cause and effect. But why is it that we believe that the human mind exists outside of cause and effect? Because we often do. We act as if, you know, we have bodies, we we live in a world, I live in a house, I, I am surrounded by material things that are constrained by cause and effect. But why do I think that my mind is free from cause and effect? And the choices that I make are free from cause and effect. And I think that that feeling is an illusion, that, that we have a libertarian free will and that there is a thinker right here behind my eyes, that there is a thinker behind my eyes m- deliberately making those choices. I have a feeling that I am choosing the words as I speak them. And I think that is an illusion. Mm. So, so you're basically a slave to fate. No, because no, uh, no, how, how not? Because the brain, the human mind can still be knocked in certain directions and we can and and we can work to push that causality in different directions. But here's where it gets meta and weird is what is it that makes you what what okay so let's take let's say i want to get in shape so i have been working out in the morning which is true so i've i've been working out in the morning that feels very much like a conscious choice that feels mm-hmm. very much like a a a conscious choice that i have made but what are but when you really sit down and examine it and when you really practice a, a when you really practice meditation, what is it that made me that kind of person? What made me that kind of person that decided in my mid thirties, okay, it's time to get in shape? What is it that made me that person versus what is it that made someone else the person who is like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's too hard. What's the difference? That difference is beyond my control. So you're you're a figment of your own imagination. Yes. And basically, I believe <laughs> I believe that the self is an illusion. Okay. I believe that free will is an illusion, and yet we still have the moral obligation to do good, and we and that seems like a conflict that seems like a paradox but i don't mm-hmm. i don't believe it is when you really drill down into so the if, experience if of free will yeah. so this is this is interesting and nor does this mean mm-hmm. determinism nor does this equal determinism this does not mean that yeah, i am because that's fated. what it sounds like yeah this yeah. does not mean that or or rather it it isn't a kind of pop form of determinism where it's like a time travel movie where no matter how much i try to divert the path of history in my own life i will always end up you know at the same timeline that's not what this is rather when you sit down and meditate, you can really see this. So a lot of this arises out of my meditation practice. 
where as a med- as a meditator, you become intensely aware of the degree to which you have no control over your thoughts. And in fact, your choice the 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 where your choices come from are absolutely mysterious to you. They they your choices are ab- so if you enter a meditative state and then or you can even do it right now think of a city think of another city okay think of a face now think of another face the origin of those images and thoughts is absolutely mysterious to you you are not choosing that so if you think so when i snap my fingers think of a face Whatever image came into your head was not something you chose. It was something that arose mysteriously from the substrate. And so that is an experience that we have on a regular... That is is the fact of our minds. Quite a bit of neuroscience demonstrates that choices we make originate in the brain before we become consciously aware of them. Say, Say that again? Choices we make originate in the brain before we become consciously aware of them. Hmm. So So the the choices are happening at a deeper level. And Mm -hmm. now there is a view called compatibilism, which is pioneered by, maybe not pioneered, but it's advocated for by... um, by uh, what's his name? By uh, uh, one of the he's one of the new atheists, um, Dan Dennett, Daniel Dennett, where we there can be a compatibilism between living freely, but between a, a, the feeling of free will and and how we live our lives and the fact that seems evident when we look at how thoughts arise and how choices yeah. arise. And um, so that, that's, that's, that's really interesting because it makes me ask the question of, okay, well, what's really controlling you then? I, I'm, I'm having the thought of this, like, uh, of a black box, the, this idea mm-hmm. of something is a black box when it works, but we don't know how it works. So for many, a cell phone is a black box because many people don't understand how this thing works, but it works, right? That we don't is, understand the mechanism of it. That is the fact of the human brain. The human yes. brain is the most complex object that we know of in the universe. And, and that is why I believe in God, because every single black box has been created by someone. Yeah. I mean, so, so we can we can go down that road later. I mm-hmm. what I am. It is a it is a true mystery. And and yeah. consciousness is a true mystery. And it is genuinely a black box. I think that. A close examination of my own mind leads me to the conclusion that I do not have the free will that I think I have. And far from having deleterious effects, I think it actually has positive effects because it means that I have a lot more compassion for myself. And it means that I have a lot more compassion for others. So so to circle back around to our original question about freedom, that makes me ask another question of, are we even capable of being free, right? Um, at the deepest, deepest level. Because uh, are we truly 100% free from restraint, speaking of 
negative freedom? And are we actually able to have positive freedom? And, and because pe people can, like, we all have telos, if, if that's what you're gonna believe. If, if we believe that everybody has telos, uh, there also has to be the acknowledgement that a lot of people don't do it. They don't live up to their, their, their I'm gonna say, created purposes, right? Uh, was that a choice on their part or were there other forces acting on them? Those who do reach their telos, those who do accomplish their providential purpose, uh, was that a personal choice? So who chooses in the background whether this person's gonna reach their purpose and this person's not gonna reach their purpose? That's right. that's the, um, that's the mystery. It, I mean, that it's the great mystery. That's that's the mystery. And I don't think anyone chooses. I don't think that there's a person behind it. I think that there is that there are mysteries behind that, yeah. you know, and, and as a matter of experience, I mean, just just experientially where thoughts emerge from, where choices emerge from. And and then even stepping back from the immediate choices and the immediate experiences that I make, like, you know, inconsequential choices, like I'm going to put creamer in my coffee today. If you pay really close attention to that choice, you will be confronted with the utter mysteriousness of where that choice emerges from. Because if you pay close enough attention, you will see that you are not the one making that choice. But if you take an even further step back, what is it that makes you the person who even considered putting coffee, putting creamer in your coffee? What is it that made you the type of person to drink coffee in the morning? Maybe you may or maybe you quit drinking coffee because it had too much caffeine and so you are switching to tea. What is it that made you that type of person? All of that is out of your control. All of that is beyond. And so whatever choices we feel like we are making are bounded. What is it that made me the kind of person to go into the arts versus business? That's beyond my control. And then what is it that made me go into voice and writing versus painting? That's so beyond this, my control, too. This whole conversation is predicate on the understanding that there is only a material universe. Not necessarily. But what if there is a spiritual reality? Well, because there, there. What if there are spiritual entities that can influence us at the deepest sub subconscious level for good and ill? Then we would be so, able to measure that. Is it, okay? So this is this actually but gets it's spiritual. To, you can't you can't scientifically measure spiritual things. It's beyond the realm of science. But you can measure their effect on the physical world. So this is this is actually so, the challenge again. So this is the problem that I continually run up against with with claims of the supernatural where and with the supernatural god and i wrote an article recently called the problem with miracles about this um a series called why why i am not a christian the problem with miracles and it's one one part in a series that i'm working on and the problem is we don't if let's just take the example of god if God is real, then he will have to be meaningfully measured in some way through his interactions with the world. What is a meaningful measurement? Because what if he has been measured? But so a meaningful measurement would be, so let's just take the example of miracles. Someone will have to be able to measure the, the fact that before, some, before the miracle, someone's spine was broken and now it is healed. That's a measurable fact. 
Water, Steven, there's water, hundreds of these accounts. They are hundreds. just accounts. And here's here's the thing. Okay, so, so we, we grew up we grew up in the same environment. You're asking for scientific proof. Yes. What's that? Go, go, go ahead. So Sorry, we, I didn't hear you. So we grew up in the same environment. We grew yes. up in that in the in a culture surrounded by miracles, right? Mm-hmm. I never saw one. Not once. I never saw a miracle. I have. Well, was now, it? I can't measure it scientifically. So I uh, cannot measure it scientifically. So there are but my knee was healed. Uh so there are three there are three hurdles that I think need to be faced when it comes to miracles. The first is Wait, wait, wait. Can can we define miracle really quick just so we're on the same page? Something that let's, breaks let's define that something word. something a supernatural intervention that breaks the laws of known physics. Okay, hold on. Let me write that down. That's a good definition. Yeah. Supernatural intervention that breaks the known laws of physics. So the the problem here is that we are confabulating creatures and we live in cultures that reinforce narratives about the world around us and i never saw a miracle even though i regularly heard miracles i regularly heard about miracles i was always on the scene one step after god um and apparently i was a missionary there were numerous stories of miracles on the mission field but the problem is that i never saw one i never had concrete evidence of one so the first hurdle is we have to get past the human ability to confabulate and and confabulate does not mean lie confabulate confabulate means interpreting and then retelling in a way that that tells a story this is human nature by the way this is what we all do so no one no one's character is implicated in this right and so first we have to cross that hurdle and i have frankly never seen it i have frankly never seen that now Here's the problem, though. When something extraordinary happens, correlation is not causation. The fact that it correlates with a fervent belief in a particular God is not proof that that God caused it. That is the unbreachable chasm that I do not know how to cross. Extraordinary things do happen. Mysteries do take place. But when we are confronted with the mysterious it is always interpreted primarily through that cultural and religious lens of the day a healing hey, steven can i ask you a question yes yeah can you prove to me scientifically when and where you were born no but i can through scientific reasoning but so not sci- through the scientific method no but scientific go- reasoning is so scientific reasoning is applied methodology to everyday reasoning right to to just everyday facts and i have good reason to believe it because i have my birth certificate i have that's testimony the, i have the yeah so i have all of that but here's the here's the thing knowledge is never absolute knowledge is always approximate so is it possible that my and that my birth in Taiwan in Taipei Taiwan was uh was a forgery <laughs> that that was that is possible 
that is always How do we know that to be true that yeah. it because it isn't extraordinary is it but isn't it that you're here actually oh, oh, oh. we both this, of us are not supposed to be alive so this actually you know gets this, right? to this gets to a really good okay this gets to another this gets to another category error i think the miracle of the created order is something that i am in awe of the the and again one encounters this through meditation the fact of Wait, did, did you just say created order it's a metaphor <laughs> i use i no, use just, just checking i use just lots checking. of i use lots of christian language because i was raised christian right and so when i say created uh -huh. order well, i mean i stop mean that that's that's religious cultural appropriation no, I, will, I don't appreciate it i will never i will never <laughs> stop because we live in a religious world um so no the the all of Sorry. the created order the all of the natural world the awe of the mysterious specificity of my life, the awe of consciousness and the genuine mystery of consciousness. I am confronted with inexplicable mysteries about the world. Now, that's real. That If that is our definition of a miracle, 100%, I will sign off on on that being a miracle. But that is a utterly different category from a miraculous healing. That is What if what if miraculous healings are basically the use of known laws just sped up? So, but then that's not a miracle anymore. But that, it's still something that's out of the normal time and space flow that's of not life. A, that's not a miracle then. Okay, so because a so, miracle but, would be a miracle. So a a miracle in how I'm defining it cannot follow the laws of the universe. It is God intervening in such a way to break mm -hmm. the known laws of the universe. Well, I, I just want to say, so of course you don't believe in miracles with that definition. I'm open to the miraculous in the sense of the extraordinary, but what would it mean, truly, what would it mean for something, if, if the universe, or if nature is the totality of existence, that would include any supernatural agents, which would therefore mean that the supernatural is merely natural. If nature, and by nature I don't mean trees and and gravity. Mm. If if it is all that exists, all that it's it's reality. All that exists, all that exists, mm -hmm. and all physics, exists. science is not the study of trees and gravity. Science is the study of all that exists, all that is measurable. And oh, but it's so limited. Yes, it's so because limited. Our, because our tools are limited. Yeah, which but is it's why, still limited. Which is why we need to practice restrained and respectful agnosticism when it comes to truth claims, right? Which is why we need epistemic humility. So my position is not that God does not exist. My position is that I don't know if God exists and therefore I am withholding belief because I do not have good reason. I do not have sufficient reason to believe in him. 
And so you are choosing. So wait, wait, wait. It's, this is a matter of free will. So you're saying this, but I hear that you're choosing this. But what makes me the type of black box within you? But yes. Making you. But what makes me the type of person to think like this? I didn't choose that. But you asked a really interesting question, which is what if something extraordinary happens that and we're going far afield from the original question, so we can get back to it after this. But what happens if something does not align with the scientific view of the world? That is science working. That's what science is meant to do. Because science is a process. Science is not the magisterium of the Catholic Church proclaiming doctrine. Science is a process, and it is always updating, it is always self-refining, and it is always imperfect. And in this way, it approaches an incomplete but progressively truer view of the world. So, for example, what happens when something seem, something extraordinary seems to happen? Well, I mean, the best example of that is quantum physics, where quantum entanglement is where, you know, uh, two particles um, get entangled through sciencey processes that I will not begin to understand or explain. But they can be billions of miles away from each other, billions of light years away from each other. And if one uh, changes their spin from up or down, then it will be mirrored in the other particle instantaneously. Okay, that breaks newtonian physics as we know it that is it's a miracle there is a you could say that by your definition but what it actually is is it is repeatable it is observable it is well founded and so instead we update our worldview to accommodate it instead we update science to accommodate it and it's a mystery that exists within the natural world that is validated. So that's what happens when a truly miraculous and interesting thing happens. And I will say that there are documented things over and over and over again throughout history. The vast majority, in my opinion, the vast majority of documented miracles do not hold muster. And according to your worldview, according to my worldview, correct. The vast majority of miracles do not hold muster, but there's, there is going to always be a sliver of, of truly extraordinary events, truly extraordinary things that defy explanation. And for me, the final hurdle is always I am confronted with a mystery, and that is as far as I can go, because what I don't have is... What I what I can't do is say because this action correlates with a particular belief that people experiencing it have, that therefore the God of that belief caused it. That's that's a logical breakdown. And how does one know 
why miraculous or extraordinary things happen you know those that sliver of truly extraordinary things there are some there are some accounts that i think are truly extraordinary well what do we do with that i think the appropriate thing to do with that is for us to practice epistemic humility and say i don't know that it is a mystery to quote my friend carrie poppy a mystery is a mystery what we're left with is a mystery and so that we we got into a miracle we went down a, a miracle sideline yep so you you speak of science as if it itself is god in a way the the ultimate source of truth no it is it's a process it is a process it but the process is it a is form of lowercase g god i'm okay yeah so it depends on how we define god i mean if we define god as a as something that provides structure and a scaffold and there's a sense of of wonder and awe at how it it functions then yeah i'm totally okay with saying it is god as long as we acknowledge the fundamentally different categories that it does not fulfill as god it it is not a judeo christian god in any sense it it does not have will it does not have volition it it is but nor do i think that it is a source of of beauty and love and purpose. I don't know if science can provide, the scientific method can provide purpose. There are truths outside of the scientific method. Science has to do with the world around us. And if Mm -hmm. there are supernatural agents, then they have to engage with that world in some way, including our brain, which suddenly means... And they do. Which suddenly... And they do. Which suddenly (laughs) means... That the that scientific reasoning applies to how we address it, mm-hmm. and if but science is still limited, always. it's a limited tool. And I guess what's that say again? And I guess where I land is because of that, it is limited. Agnosticism about mysteries in the physical world are the appropriate posture. Humility, humility is the oh, yeah. Appropriate, I, I would agree that posture. humility is. Yeah, definitely yeah. need to come to these things with humility. Yes. Uh, so there we agree. Absolutely. Humility across the board. Okay, so we went down the miracle detour. Yes, yes. So let's, should, should we wrap this up by recircling back to that, does human nature allow for the individual to be truly free? And I, I think the answer is n- no. No. <laughs> no. No. Is, I mean, it depends no? on how we define freedom, but no. I mean, I, we. So freedom's an illusion. Freedom. Well, it depends on what kind of freedom. Of course, you know, it depends on what definition of freedom. But yes, I think that. So that I'm sorry, if, if freedom's an illusion, then why do we fight for freedom so hard as a, as a human race? What's the point of setting captives free and going against slavery and being all upset about human trafficking and and the, the, the gulags up there in, in Russia? And so if freedom is not real or worth fighting for. So it, it doesn't remove the fact of morality. And but if we don't have any free will, what's the point of morality? Uh, morality exists regardless of whether we there it has a point or m- morality is a fact it is life isn't a a morality play that teaches us morals it is a fact it is and the reason morality is or is not a fact is because we are conscious creatures capable of suffering whose morality are we to follow then uh so this gets that into make sense? yes, of course. Is this another podcast topic? This is this is another <laughs> podcast topic. But you know, I situate my morality in the fact of consciousness, and you know, we can we've covered 
this before, but the fact that we are conscious creatures capable of suffering, um, that matters to me. Now, to say that is to run afoul of the is-ought problem, to say that something is true is not to say that it ought to be, and... I'm comfortable with that. That's we all we have to accept some degree of trust. But some forms of trust are more reasonable than others. And in my opinion, yeah, because I, I I immediately think trust in what? Right. What am I trusting so in in this my, situation? My what I am trusting in in this situation is that caring about the well-being of other conscious creatures is reasonable. That that is I think that is a reasonable proposition, even if it is not 100 percent unassailable. Some forms of trust are more reasonable than others. And we have to make we 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 all have priors and all priors will be to some degree indefensible. Right. And but some are more indefensible than others. And I think that the truth claims of theistic religion are less defensible than the leaps from is to ought <laughs> uh, in terms of consciousness. I think I think one of those is more is a bigger chasm than is to ought. So I want to like circle back around to that final question because it is disturbing to say that that freedom is an illusion. Yeah. Right. And so I, you know, I was reading this morning, the, um, Oh, what was it? The, it's the Scottish declaration of Ambroth. Have you heard of this? It's from 1320. I haven't. And it's after it's right after William Wallace, you know, Braveheart freedom, that, that whole movie, William Wallace was, was killed and Robert the Bruce ascended the throne of, of Scotland. And so the, the Declaration of Ambroth was the a letter written to Pope John XII asking for recognition of the Scottish nation. Okay, so the Scots had been fighting for freedom at the cost of incredible amounts of blood and toil, right? And they write, it is not only for glory, or I'm sorry, it is not for glory or riches or honors that we fight, but only for liberty, which no good man will consent to lose, but with his life. So it's, it's this... And that, that just kind of stirs your blood, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, it's kind mm -hmm. of reminiscent of Patrick And I, and I agree Patrick with that. Henry's. I agree with that. So when I so, say so freedom my, is an illusion, I mean uh -huh. I mean libertarian free will. I mean, I think that is an illusion. Okay. And also freedom, if it means freedom from our human nature, freedom from the constraints upon our lives, freedom from the rules of the sonnet, that isn't freedom. Um, Correct. Yep. And... But I, the value of freedom is rooted in the fact that we are, we are human beings that care about things. And one of the things that we care about is flourishing. And why do we care? So that, that's where I, you know, it, we have been going for about an hour and a half. So I kind of want to like wrap this up with yeah. this thought of this, this heavy question of, why? Because history is the story of people fighting for freedom. Lord yes. Lord Acton said that the development of liberty is the soul of history. So it's like throughout human history has been this this striving, this this fighting for 
freedom in its various forms, whether it's freedom from or freedom for. Yes. And, and so why is that? What about human nature, even though it appears through our conversation that humans can't be free? We strive for it. We yes. try so hard to do it. Why? Right? Why does that matter? Why does it matter? That's another good question. Okay, so because here's here's the thing is... Why should we be we, free? We are... It, the question is not, why should we be free? The question is, why does why does the roots of our human desire for freedom, why does that matter in regards to the morality of pursuing that freedom? I think it tells us something about us. It tells us something about our nature. And... Um, I'll ha honestly, I'll have to think through this this idea of where morality, like the the disconnect between morality and these questions that that you've brought up. Um, but I think this just the question itself: Why should we be free? Why is that? Is it moral to be free? Yeah, it does. It does. And you know, my position is that we yearn for freedom in a particular way. So it, let's define freedom as. Not define it as, but it it can be, it can be aligned with maximal human flourishing, yeah. and we have positive and negative and balanced out together. Being a chattel slave is not an ideal state of affairs, and that is true. But why is that? Why is that wrong? Yeah, that, that's what I'm asking. If we do not have free will, if there, you know, what? Why is that so wrong? Like, how do we know that so deep in our our souls? Yeah. Right. Well, Why we don't. Do we, we don't know that? know that deep in our soul. Do we? No, we don't. But we know it's wrong historically. We do, we do now. Fighting. Now we do. But slavery because of the Christian heritage, I might add, it was uh, it was the Christian heritage that knocked out slavery in Europe in the fourteen and fifteen hundreds. That's right. But yeah. but human nature. But human nature does not know that. Human nature okay. has, has deeply has has truly different. Um. We can get it. That's for another conversation, so I won't pursue yeah. that right now. But why does it matter? It it matters because we're conscious creatures. We were evolved to be conscious, which means that there are right and wrong answers to what is beneficial to a conscious creature. It, there so are, even though we're we're destined to be slaves in that way, we uh, fight. We might be. That, we might. Right? We might be. Um, using the word slave in a different way here, because I don't to, mean like, because think of, think of it more slave, like, think of it more like, why are we confined on this planet earth mm -hmm. that are, that, that has laws of, you know, and we're confined by gravity and we have to breathe air. Mm -hmm. Why is that? You know, it, it's just a, a fact of our existence and yeah, I guess I was referring to political slavery. Okay. So or political oppression. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's rephrase the question. Why does it matter that someone might be enslaved? Cuz it's wrong. And it's <laughs> and it's wrong. But how do we know that? How do we know it's wrong? Because because <laughs> Who says it's wrong? Conscious creatures because it becomes self-evident when we accept that 
conscious creatures are capable of suffering and not suffering. And but where does the self-evident stuff come from? That's what gets me. That's where the does it come that's from? the is ought that that's where the is ought distinction happens, right? That's where the that's where the leap from the fact that creatures do suffer we have to take that leap to they ought to suffer or they ought not suffer. That is a leap. My proposition is not that it is logically and philosophically unassailable. My proposition is that it is more reasonable than believing in God. It and is, I think just the opposite. I know. My, which my, is why we're so different. <laughs> my proposition is that it requires a bigger leap with more ungrounded assumptions, with more unfounded assumptions to believe in the divine being who is the measure of all reality, who is the, who is the objective measuring stick of what is moral. That is a bigger leap with more unfounded conclusions than to take the small leap of saying consciousness is real because I have it, so it is self-evident in that way. I assume, I have to assume that other people are conscious. And I also can expand the circle of empathy, as Peter Singer says, expand the circle of empathy maybe to other creatures like dogs and cats and so on, that there is a conscious experience there. And then I can say, it sucks to be a slave because it reduces human flourishing. It is painful. It is humiliating. It is demoralizing. I can empathize. I can put myself in that place. And then I make the leap that Hume pointed out, that David Hume pointed out in the is-ought distinction. I make the leap by saying, because that is the case, I have consciousness, I can empathize, I can throw my mind into the, imaginatively throw my mind into the plight of others and feel that pain. From that, I can take that leap to, therefore they ought not suffer. That, to me, is, a, is such a more reasonable and smaller leap in comparison to saying that a supernatural being created the universe and that he is three in one and his son came to earth and was crucified, dead and buried, and then resurrected on the third day, and he was born of a virgin, and um, on and on and on and on and on, all the claims of Christianity— one is small and it, one is elegant, even though it does require certain leaps, while the other, in my mind, is fairly cumbersome. And well, yep. So it's a good thing I don't believe in God then, it's, uh, but rather that I know him. And therein good. lies the difference, right? I would, yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I, I believe you when you say that you know God. That you have that experience, I, I believe you when you say that. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna wrap up. Yes, uh, this we've been session. going. We've been going we've been for going, about an, gonna, with lots of rabbit trails, which are delightful. Hour, I wish we could talk all afternoon. Over an hour and a uh, half. Yes. I I have children. I must educate. <laughs> children who, who are <laughs> starving right now. Who, yes, who can't feed themselves apparently. They so, can't butcher um, the pig on to, their own. Oh, they need help. So I guess to wrap this question up. 
I, I keep going back to how to, to the place of where, okay, we've answered the question of no, human nature does not allow for an individual to be truly free. However, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So there's this idea of, yeah, we can't do it, but it's something to strive for. It's something that that perhaps we we are deeply designed for it in a way that somehow we're not able to reach it right now. But it but because of human history and because of just the human nature, it is something that keeps coming up and up and up. Uh, and so it's worth preserving. It's worth talking about. It's worth striving for this idea of of ordered liberty, because without it, there's a lot of suffering that happens. And so because because we are capable of suffering, we ought not to suffer, to yeah. use your words. Yeah. And 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 the debate is important. And the fact that this debate has been going for literally thousands of years and it will continue to go for thousands of years, that's that's part of the process. That's that is as important as the questions it attempts to answer. Yeah. And not throwing out the baby with the bathwater in the process of those wrestling through things, which is why I really appreciate having conversations with you, Stephen, that you help me. sharpen and hone my thinking you make me go look up words because you you were use words i don't know so that's always you good. too by uh, the way <laughs> all right i pr- i will purposely find difficult words in the dictionary to use next time Please to do. stump you that's my personal goal it's interesting sorry i'm going to extend this out a bit more but it's it's interesting how we it's so interesting the collision of intellectual and cultural worlds because we we both take things for granted that are utterly alien to each other. Mm-hmm. And that is really interesting to me. That experience is really interesting to me. And um, no, I, I enjoy that experience. I, I think it's probably something that makes a lot of people like cringe and writhe like it isn't pleasant. But I, I find it really interesting, this experience of entering other other worldviews. Yeah. It is. It's it's very it's very healthy, I think, to have these types of conversations. And and I, I know that we are unique and blessed in this aspect to have such a solid friendship and relationship that we can actually talk about these things. Yeah. Um and, and to not get mad at each other. I mean, I do get mad at you, but you know, that's passing and I'll get over it. <laughs> yeah, same. No, it's fine. We get mad at each other all the time. It's I, I will say, however, it is so much better than it was. We used Oh my goodness. We used yes. to we used to we were at each other's throats. For- oh, my word. You would make me cry. Me and Rebecca. Do Aww. you know that Rebecca and I would like, after you'd leave, you're like, we just have a cry fest. <laughs> that does not surprise me at all. I'm- uh, but we'd probably make you cry, too. So it's, you know. Oh, yes. No, the feelings go. The fe- <laughs> I don't cry frequently. I'm not really a crier, but, you know, the equivalent of yeah. crying. Yes. It, you know, it's just sib- that, the sibling life. That's just the way it is. Well, what, what I see here and hear here is the fruit of of bearing together with one another our ups and downs and our trials and our tribulations and and saying like i i remember i remember when you came out and how devastating it was for me yeah. but i made the decision to love you anyway and to walk with you throughout it and even though it was hard and it made me go oh i don't know what to think about this and it, it it was it was like this huge blow to me. It really was, but it was that well. Maybe it wasn't a conscious decision. Where did this decision come from? Ha-ha. What, what made you the type I, of person to be that way? Yes, but go on. <laughs> I don't know, but it's like I I remember thinking to myself, if Stephen ever needs a kidney, I'm going to be the one to give it to him. Yeah. And so I better maintain that relationship. And vice versa. And maintain, 
Yeah. So you, you know what I'm saying? Yes, um, for sure. And it has paid off. It has paid off. 10, 10, 15 years later, it has paid off. So if anyone out there is listening and they're in that same dynamic of struggling through a family member doing something that really breaks your heart, make the decision to stick with them and to love them through it and love them regardless, because in 10 years, it'll pay off. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree with that for sure. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleventy Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on iTunes. Nope, iTunes doesn't exist anymore. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my paying subscribers at sacredtension.substack.com. And, as always, stay curious, and thanks for listening. <laughs>